Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. So, Good afternoon. This is Sally Hughes. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're completely hormonal today. Um, <laughs> that was Nina Simone feeling good. Every song today pertains to a feeling because we're going to be talking hormones for the next couple of hours. Uh, we have got the brilliant writer Eleanor Morgan talking about her new book, Hormonal. We have Dr. Amalia Anna Radnam from the London Hormone Clinic. And obviously we have Kate Severe because she's always here. <laughs> always. <laughs> she just lives here. Um, I really, really wanted to do this special show. We normally skip about topics, but I really wanted to do a whole show on hormones because as my husband, who's just dropped in unexpectedly, will attest, um, I've been sent quite mental by my hormones recently. Um, and my whole life, when women and friends used to talk about uh, PMT and how unhappy they were or how anxious they were, how grumpy they were, I always used to, for my sins, say, oh, buck up, come on, it's mm, just a period. Right. Yeah. And I've never really understood what they meant. And I think I'm definitely guilty of thinking that people were dramatising, overreacting or engaging in a kind of social play. Yeah. about hormones and then probably mm. about 18 months ago I started to feel quite unhappy and mad and there was nothing really the matter with me I didn't have depression I've had depression before I it didn't feel the same I went to see my doctor and just hit a wall nobody really I had loads of tests scary tests mm. to see if I had lots of scary things they all came back fine so I was basically told to go away oh thanks guys um, <laughs> and it wasn't until uh, I visited in complete desperation the London Hormone Clinic and I did pay by the way this is not an advertisement I paid like a normal patient um, it wasn't until I went there that I realised there were all sorts of things the matter like I didn't have any progesterone um, I was woefully vitamin D deficient which I know most people are but um, the endocrinologist told me my results were the worst she'd seen this year. Wow. wow. Um, and all sorts of things were the matter, but things that the doctor had said were all fine and normal, and it has been transformative. Uh, my thyroid had completely packed up, so I'm now taking drugs for that. Um, I now have progesterone cream. I now take stacks and stacks of vitamin D, way more than most people take via supplements. And I feel very, very different indeed. And so when Eleanor's book came through the post, I was really interested in it. And I suppose I just feel, I feel really guilty, actually. I feel bad for my complete lack of sympathy mm. um, derived from lack of empathy that sure. I had so long. So, Eleanor, you can relate quite heavily to um, your hormones making you feel a certain way. You've written in the past about your anxiety. You've written a book mm -hmm. about anxiety. Tell us about where you sort of, you linked up your anxiety with perhaps what was a hormone issue. Mm. It, took, it, it took a while. It took years. I think my, I lived with, I've lived with um, a propensity for anxiety panic attack since I was a teenager and I left it you know I didn't address it or kind of really dig into it or accept it until I was in my early 20s mid-20s even and basically had a breakdown um and it was only then that I really started even thinking about you know the the inner language that I use towards myself um and then it so I, I started having therapy and 
understanding myself better. And then in the coming years after that, particularly actually once I got Clue, the period mm. app, um, and started tracking my cycle and just I, I'd always known because I've always had really bad periods really really painful um I'm now being investigated for endometriosis after pff, 10 years okay. um but the the psychological aspect was has always been difficult and it's always been quite a swimming thing that I haven't really been able to put my finger on but when I started tracking my cycle I realized that there was sort of two periods for want of a better phrase in the month so during ovulation and then sort of around day 21 to 23 where I where, where all of this sort of existential self-surveillance um anxiety sadness all of that stuff would be I'd feel it and I just feel things so much more um so in answer to your question it it took a long time and I certainly feel over researching and writing the book that I feel like I've gone on such a quote-unquote journey. <laughs> <laughs> Love a journey. <laughs> Love a journey, yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's been a hard one. I think I was so resistant to accepting the idea that my fluctuating hormones, that the kind of essence of me as a woman, the biological essence of me, could have a relationship with how I act think and feel um and i suppose the the kind of feminist uh trigger reaction is to is was to want to dismiss it all the time all yeah. the time and so you saying at the beginning that you feel guilty for not having or, or that you didn't have compassion i think actually i think what you're verbalizing is what plays out in a lot of women's minds pri about themselves privately yeah I really think that, and I think that's the kind of, that's the obstacle so often, because you don't want to, no one wants to be the kind of hormonal slash hysterical, you know. Well, it's, we're in a bind, right? Because we've been told there's that stereotype of oh, uh, emotional, emotional women, yeah. world leaders, not meant to cry, yeah. all of yeah. that, right? And then to then, for us to be, we had to fight very hard to be like, no, 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 we're the same, equal, equal, equal. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm going to buck up. I'm not going to cry. Even if I am on my period, you're never going to know because I'm going to remain the same to yes. prove to you that I'm not overly hormonal. Yes. And then to then be working at it from a different angle of, well, shit, actually, yes, this, these hormones do affect me yeah. and my my mental health and the way that I feel and the way that I react to things. And then for that to then be integrated into how we are now and us in the workplace and in our relationships to be like, actually, yes, I am hormonal and I'm reacting to this different than I would. Like, it's a lot to kind of take on and be it, compassionate to ourselves Amalia, and other people do you find when new patients come into the london hormone clinic that there's that resistance that eleanor is talking about where people almost don't want to believe that their hormones are getting in the way of them feeling okay i think massively i think by the time i mean the first thing to say i think the fact that we're having this conversation is really good because this is a massive change that women are actually talking about it now and talking amongst each other and that's how we've always worked at London Hormone Clinic is patients come, then they can be resistant, but I think by the time they come to us, they've figured out what's going on. They've, mm. they've tracked their cycles, so mm. they come in thinking, I'm pretty sure this is hormonal. Everyone's telling me it's not, and my bloods are normal, And but these things are happening every month, exactly as Eleanor said. 
Ah. I noticed it was mid-cycle, mm. the week before my period comes, or sometimes during the period, that people notice they get symptoms. And I think by the time they've come to us, they've figured that out because they've been down all the other routes. And so Eleanor's experience and my experience, in mm. fact, of, of exploring the, the, the normal GP route and mm. saying actually something's really wrong mm. and not getting very far, is that typical? I think it is. I think it's really difficult. You know, I am an NHS GP as well. That's how yeah. I was trained. So a lot of patients come in aggravated by, oh, God, my GP's rubbish. They didn't pick anything up. I think the first thing to point out is we don't learn about hormones at medical school. Really? We learn about the massive, you know, the big topics like growth hormone deficiency and mm. thyroid, severe thyroid disorders, and really the old-fashioned things that we very rarely see anymore, you know, the giants and things like that. We don't see those conditions as much now. What we see now is more hormonal imbalance, I think, and that's what I refer to it as. So, you know, people are getting symptoms. You know, your younger women get PMT or endometriosis, polycystic ovaries. Those are the common things we see in people from 20s to 40s over 50s the menopause then attack so we suffer some people suffer their whole life you know they suffer like and you said from your teens with heavy painful periods and I think we don't know what's normal as mm. as patients because even when you're young you start having periods I see kids that flood but they've only known that they flood every you know they go through Tampax three sanitary towels every mm. few hours but that's normal for them and they yeah, don't talk they about think it this is just precisely it. Yeah. and and I think we don't we don't learn about it at medical school so doctors aren't as aware of it and I think we're looking at a new area of medicine in, in what I look at as ho hormone optimization. that with you know, environmental pollutants exogenous estrogens the pill mm. all of these things plastics we're seeing a different kind of hormone problem which we don't really learn about and only if you know you were lucky enough to go to whatever clinic or London Hormone Clinic or goes to somebody that specialises in that, you won't always see abnormalities on a blood test. So that's why yeah. the history is important because your hormones fluctuate every yeah. month. And, and the blood test thing is so... I found, doing the research with book, I did mm. a lot of... So I went to a, a, a private hormone clinic, the Marion Gluck Clinic, um, with, you know, presenting with my kind of usual monthly... Mm. PMS kind of madness mm. um, and they did a, you know a, a batch of tests and the GP there who I saw I, I ended up not taking anything mm. um, but she said something really important which was that you know a test on one day on one month of your cycle mm. is the tiniest measure mm. of how your whole physiology mm. operates and doesn't take into account the kind of complex interplay of environmental yeah. factors yeah. and so I think I think we can get I mean this is going slightly off topic but I think we can get quite caught up in the idea of you know the kind of over medicalizing yeah. mm. of hormone because obviously there is a you know it's a biological system yeah. of course and it underpins so much but it's not everything yeah. is it it's, no. it's a part of the Picture. Yeah, but that's even worse in a way because because presumably funding is a factor as well in this area of medicine on yeah. the NHS. So if you go with a hormonal problem, obviously you've said there's there's a training issue, but presumably funding plays into it. Yeah. But also what Eleanor's saying is it plays into a mental health area which is woefully underfunded mm -hmm. and woefully misunderstood, mm. and so it can feel like, frankly, you're in a clusterfuck of, <laughs> of poor yeah. health yeah. where. 
where your doctor is likely to be really under-resourced and under-equipped and yeah. under-trained to deal with the, where those two things collide. Yeah. Mm, yeah, massively. And I think, I mean, you'll attest to this, I'm sure, the kind of, the, the kind of biological model of, of this kind of distress often, mm. I think, can be hugely reductive mm. for women. You know, if you kind How of... How so? Well, because I think, like I was just saying, it's not, and this is kind of the main thrust of the book, it's kind of, we're very quick to say, it's just my hormones. And, you know, sometimes it will be, you know, if it's a thyroid condition, then yeah, you're, you know, it's going to have a massive effect on your mm. kind of physiology, your psychology. But in terms of the kind of monthly fluctuations in mental health that I have, you know, it's taken... It's been a real sort of path of discovery to be able to accept or to challenge the idea that I can just say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just my hormones, it's just my biology, mm -hmm. because that could never be. Yeah, as if there's this neutral sort of the real true self. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. I think that's exactly it. That's what we're sort of always wrestling with, this mm. idea that there's this, men this sacred mental equilibrium yes. that mm. we're always supposed to have particularly as women mm -hmm. and I think whenever we sort of dip or slip away from that we're like oh fucking hell like, yeah yeah who am I what am I doing Ugh. it's really terrifying this I, I've never really I've never really thought about that the you have this idea of how you really truly are your mm. true self and that your hormones are just getting in the way of that mm. or your mental health is just getting in the way of that yeah, and it's like so a, it's like at what point do you go Oh no! This is this is just me, and how how I actually am fluctuates yeah. month to month. But then, presumably, you know. Amalia, that then becomes a management issue rather than a than a straightforward treatment issue. Because actually, I completely understand uh, what you're both saying. But to play devil's advocate, I did feel weird. Mm. I didn't feel myself. I felt incredibly sorrowful mm. for mm. no particular yeah. tangible reason. Yeah. I felt incredibly sad, really irritable. I'm quite an even-tempered person. I'm not a very yeah. irritable person. Suddenly, everyone was getting on my nerves for no reason. I was harsh, harsh to my family, thought harshly of my friends. And I felt overwhelmingly sad. And so I really did need something to be fixed. And even yeah. that, with such kind of dramatic difference in my mentality and mood, that wasn't enough to convince anyone that there was something the matter with yeah. me. Everybody's different, I think. And, and everybody's, I think, like you say, there is a, a normal fluctuation on a monthly basis, on a 10-yearly basis. So our hormones differ from our 20s to our 30s mm. to our 40s. We face different kind of challenges as it were during our whole lifespan I think there's definitely a, a look for women to just you know we, we get used to just get on and deal with it mm. like you say we, we you just get on with it suffering as we generally say suffer in silence mm. which is what we do because I think we're also busier stress has an impact so I think what you're saying is people have a background personality to whether you're a bit more predisposed to be an anxious person, mm. a bit mm -hmm, more predisposed mm -hmm. yeah. to be a depressed person, yeah. a bit more predisposed to be more tired or, you know, a morning person and not morning. We're all different as a, our baseline mm. physiology, if that makes sense. Yeah. What I try and get across to my patients is 
when your hormones are out of sync, I think what happens is it exacerbates those things. Yeah. Yeah. So you become so a more extreme precise, version of yeah. your natural exactly. disposition. So more, you know, if you're more anxious, your baseline is probably manageable before your cycle. You get a bit more anxiety. But I think when your hormones are really out of balance, it is much worse. Yeah, mm. so like in and Sally's yeah. case, she knew her baseline. Yeah. And then there was something completely yeah. different Precisely. happening because there were extreme imbalances. Yeah. And, and stress, you know, I, I think stress has a massive impact mm. nowadays on people. Yeah. Health, well-being on their hormones itself. Yeah, so, because the the what is the the chemical hormone that's released during stress? Cortisol. cortisol. So yeah. and then what does cortisol do to everything else? Oh, that's God. so. Just sum it up. Messes it up. Makes me feel like we should take a break for record before we open the Pandora's box <laughs> yeah. of cortisol. cortisol. Yeah. Um, we'll be back in a sec with Dr. Amalia Anaradnam from the London Hormone Clinic and Eleanor Morgan, whose new book Hormonal comes out tomorrow. I should have mentioned that. Um, following on with our playlist of moods here we go with Khalees this is my mood this was my mood for about 18 months That was Khalees and Caught Out there. The playlist today is all about feelings because we're talking about hormones with Eleanor Morgan, writer of Hormonal, and Dr Amalia from the London Hormone Clinic. Before we went to Khalees, appropriately enough with Caught Out there, (laughs) um, we were talking about cortisol and stress. I think that's such a big thing with Mm. hormones, the way those two things interplay. Can you talk a bit more about that, Amalia? So... I'll try and keep it simple. I don't want to go into the <laughs> biochemistry, probably because I don't know about going back to my biochemical days. But basically, when your body's stressed out, to cut a long story short, you, you produce a lot of cortisol. And cortisol basically just messes up the rest of your hormones. So it will affect your sleep. It will affect so it affects your melatonin levels, which then in turn affect your sleep. It then will have a direct impact on your ins- on your insulin levels, your estrogen and progesterone which are your kind of fertility cyclical hormones and all of those things so you know we were talking about diet and exercise and trying to keep things balanced and keep stress I mean it's impossible we all these very stressful lives if you live in London even this morning you know trains were late everything my body's just I can feel it going and and it's I try and deal with all of that with my patients so coming in rubbing a cream or taking a pill doesn't fix everything if you're not sleeping running around drinking too much not doing any exercise eating loads of sugar it, you we've got to do, we've got to do everything we've got to look at our bodies as a whole mm. picture really and try and deal with stress management to keep our cortisol levels low because and so our cortisol i just say is produced from the adrenal glands so they're the little glands that sit above your kidneys and then when you're stressed out they release lots of cortisol so back in caveman times they were there so that if we got chased by a bear our adrenaline cortisol we could run away ran and we did it and then we'd go and lie in a cave and keep very calm and now what our (laughs) body does is to put it like we're basically being chased by bears all the time every yeah. day on Instagram and, day, all the time. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's bears. the impact it's Twitter having is yeah. our bodies are we're just releasing cortisol all the time um so yeah that's it's 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 ha- inflammation chron- like yeah there's a real that so much of the 
research in mental health now is pointing towards inflammation, isn't it? Kind of like yeah. on a cellular level. Yeah. And that's all of this stuff. You know, if we're if we're chronically stressed, we're chronically inflamed. You know, in our yeah. absolute kind of cellular level. Yeah. Um, but it's I think it's sometimes quite scary to hear that stuff. But you know, given what you're saying, it's actually all with quite simple changes that we don't sort of on a day-to-day level might not pay much attention mm. to but it is on a simple level mm. it can be manageable yeah. Can't yeah. It? yeah it's interesting that you mentioned sugar because I think for for lots of women and men because mm. as Eleanor points out in her book quite rightly we talk about hormones as a woman's thing no. because mm. yeah. we relate them to feelings and feelings yeah. are female and men are feelingless and um, but of course men um, are also governed by hormones different hormones um, but sugar for lots of women is the thing that you turn to mm. when you do oh, God, feel yeah. Yeah. emotional. Yeah. And so how, how is sugar worsening things? Well, see, sugar then spikes other levels in your, in your body and it affects your insulin levels. And then that in turn affects your other hormones and makes everything worse. So, and, and, and sugar, see, I think sugar is a bit of a killer because people talk about when you say sugar, you think, oh, Snickers. Whisper, dairy milk bar. You sugar don't think in my bread. That loaf of bread. Exactly. You don't think bread, pasta, rice, any other form of carbohydrate yeah. that exists. And it's not to say you never eat carbs. Fruit, for example. Yeah. People, five a day, five a day, five portions of veg, one portion of fruit a day is what we should be having. So what I always say, it's the hidden sugar really that's, that's bad mm. in terms of high dose of people take a lot of carb, way more carbohydrate than we need in our diet um i'll happily sit and eat, eat an entire loaf of bread if oh. i'm sad easy oh, yeah. absolutely yeah. actually over i mean i always those are my plans but yeah <laughs> it's it's bread it's yeah. always mm. i could just do like rounds after rounds yeah. of toast 100 well, oh, yeah. i mean all it, i want yeah toast yeah I and know. i want to feel like that sense of fullness yes, yes. That, but then of course you and it ap- doesn't last it's the it doesn't last yeah and I went to see a nutritionist um, who was a physiologist. I don't really know what that means, but <laughs> it's a kind yeah. of one of those swimmy yeah. terms, isn't it? Anyway, um, so he did this, interestingly, he did this um, this fancy urine test on me called... <laughs> Sorry, a I'd love to know what that looks test. like, a yeah. fancy urine well, test. Well, no, it wasn't you fancy. You just into a champagne bottle. I peed into like an ornate urn. No, it was, oh, it was called Organics Comprehensive. Does that mean anything to you? Anyway, um, and so he did this test that apparently showed up all of these things in my gut. And I think I'm really interested in gut health and how it relates to hormones, microbiome. You know, the bacteria in our gut is a whole organ of itself. It has its own mind. Um, But he found that I had like a yeast overgrowth, Mm. um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth and all of this stuff that sounded quite scary and there was a bit where he was like oh you've actually got mild brain inflammation and I was like okay all right just drop that into a conversation yeah and it kind of that took me on a really interesting tangent because I think we can get so I think caught up if it particularly as women I think there's this quite pernicious idea that we need to keep testing and testing and testing Mm. until we find exactly what's wrong but actually everything he found you know it did relate to my symptoms but the remedy was so simple Mm. and you know he he found all of these kind of scary sounding things 
But actually, the remedy was less sugar, sugar. eat more oily fish, um, eat more fermented things. And making, you know, it was... And I just think it's a pretty basic blueprint Mm. that we can kind of tell people about. Mm. And I kind of... I'm so... I mean... I hope you don't take offence to this, but I'm kind of... I think women pay a fortune Mm. sometimes in the private sector to find out something that, you know, that actually if they began making simple changes they might find I think yeah. that's really true yeah. and I but I think that's true of culture generally yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. need something fixed don't we yeah. something's the matter just fix it just yeah. get it fixed yeah. and I'm really guilty of that my mentality is the reason I found it so hard with my GP it, it is partly my failing in that I just want you to fix it yeah, yeah. I never come to the doctor I'm never ill now mm. I'm ill can you just please sort it out this yeah. is what I need and the more holistic approach, which you're talking about, which is which you're both talking about, in mm. fairness, is somebody mm. works in private practice. You're also saying this mm. that actually the answers are very often on the outside of the clinic. Yeah. Mm. Um, I didn't think about those things, or maybe I didn't want to think about those things. You you mention in the book, Eleanor, um, that moving around is important. That you that you find exercise is mm. quite a big thing for you. Yeah, massively. I mean, you cycled here today, didn't you? Yeah. You need to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a dog as well who I have to be out with two hours a day. Otherwise, it's just hell. Um, <laughs> it's just like a whirling dervish. She's yeah. got the silliest dog. Eleanor, Eleanor and I are pen pals with yeah. dog pictures. Oh, I, thought I, about each other dog pictures. I thought about bringing her today, but she'd just be a nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, I think moving for me, and that was a... I've always been quite fit. I did loads of sport at school. And then when I started to get really anxious, and when it all kind of caught up with me... I realised that I hadn't been, you know, I wasn't really exercising. And so once I started, I kind of, I now, it's the thing that I know, I just know absolutely in my bones that if I'm not leaving the house and sort of walking around and I'd cycle everywhere, but it is, that is my kind of... I can't think of that's the like word. your baseline. That's it is you my know, baseline. Like, yeah. That's the it's a you you're not compromising that time. Well, I, no. I have to cycle yeah. for at least an hour today. That's that's what mm. I must do because yeah. it keeps my base. Because then then you're actually in touch with. It sounds like you know yourself. I feel like mm. I feel very like exposed in this room because I'm like I don't feel like I know myself and my body nearly as well as the yeah. three of you guys do. Um, and to know right, I must exercise. I mm. must do this. I must eat. Uh, you know, three portions of oily fish a week or whatever it is to at least know your baseline so that, as Vasali was saying, if when there is something wrong, then you, you know, fucking know. No, I think I'm closer to you than I am to right. Eleanor, really. I, th- I think it's been a very new discovery for me. I don't think I have much of a relationship with my body at all, actually. Mm. And I think that's why I wanted a magic pill and it's been quite... <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's been quite... A learning curve, really. So I was at, I was at Glastonbury uh, this weekend, and when you're at Glastonbury, you end up walking ten or eleven miles a day. It's really that, that's just yeah. how it is. Were your legs just and destroyed? I, yeah, and I felt so good. Like I yeah. felt really nice. Yeah. And and it wasn't looking at numbers on an iPhone and seeing that I'd walked no. eleven miles. Yeah. It was just the feeling of having walked eleven miles. Your body wants mm. it. Your body does. Yeah, I move. felt terrific. You know, and I slept really yeah. well. And mm. you know, and and I wasn't. You know, I'm I'm older now. 
now my lifestyle has changed. It's not like I was taking drugs all weekend and, and hung over. <laughs> I was enjoying myself. Ooh. I was just kind of walking around, sleeping really well. You were hydrated. And and hydrated. <laughs> I was really hydrated. Don't don't believe the Daily Mail is what I would say. There were more people queuing for burgers than there were for water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I felt great, and actually, I don't. I feel I'm still learning things like that about myself. When things Mm. happen accidentally, like I move around a lot, I think, oh, actually, that is really nice. And I do feel substantially better. better. Yeah. Mm. It's confusing. No, you go ahead. You're the guest. I'm always, (laughs) as we were saying, I'm always here. Go ahead, Eleanor. Okay, I'm privileged. (laughs) Um, So in this, just tying on from what you're saying about this kind of self-awareness, knowledge of yourself, I actually, from the beginning... Of, you know the process of researching kind of synthesizing everything for this book and writing it um going back to that journey word again <laughs> um i it, i began the book kind of from the position of having tried lots and lots of things as you know as we're saying i wanted a kind of magic pill to fix mm. my monthly kind of these dips and this kind of wretched um you know sort of self-loathing actually Mm. that I would feel twice a month Mm. I'm very physical you know I feel anxiety very very physically in my body um but I did I did want a magic pill I wanted something I suppose I sort of wanted like a panacea for Mm. for this swimming distress but it was getting to the end of the line in terms of my treatment options basically so I tried a marina coil I tried the mini pill. I tried um, estrogen gel. Yeah. <laughs> You're wincing. <Exactly> wincing. <laughs> yeah. um, and not all of them made me feel like shit. Um, yeah. And it was kind of getting to... I had one kind of final conversation with a male gynaecologist in the NHS. He was actually lovely. Um, but he was like, there's not much more we can do for you. And I was like, shit. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. What, what am I going to do? Now? But then that was honestly... The point at which I thought, okay, well, if it's not some intrinsic biological defect and there's a lot more going on, can I actually really start exploring this in therapy? What else can I look at in my life? And actually, that was the kind of, that was the door to really actually getting a handle on it. Mm. So it was a weird, weird Mm. way round of running out of options, Mm. you know, kind of... And it's very medical options, isn't very it? Medical. Because when the things you've just described, of it, I mean, I could have told you they would have made everything worse in terms of you, you, what they don't. If you put the Mirena, they're all using synthetic progestogens. Yes. And we don't really look at hormones as a whole picture. So those generally, for some people, especially with anxiety and low mood, tend to be worse. And and even women no have. And, and don't get me wrong, people any... need contraception. So I'm not talking about oh, we, we shouldn't use contraception. We should all go back to you know ancient times you need contraception but you need to know i know there's certain patients of mine that you get sent to go and put a coil in and they're like, oh have the myrena it's brilliant and if you've got really heavy periods the myrena is brilliant it is yeah. the method of choice if you have a sensitivity to progestions even the myrena can affect your mood and make you anxious and make you depressed oh, and I had that okay, and well. it was just it was such a battle every time to be taken seriously i probably went i went back into the gum clinic i saw my gp I must have gone back four or five times mm. in six months and said, I really think this is making me feel like mm. shit. And every time they were like, just give it a bit longer to settle mm. down. 
and then never did. And I just mm. I booked an emergency appointment and just said, please just take, take it, it out. Yeah. I think knowing your body, that's where we're kind of talking this about. This is, yeah. Know your body. And, and we have, I think, as women, and generally as humans, got so far away from knowing what the norm is for us. Oh. Like when I talk through to my patients of, and it takes something like this to figure out when you ovulate and when your period's due. Mm. Know your body in terms of, People look at me when I say, well, do you know when you ovulate? Do you get pains? Does your mucus check? A bit gross. But does your mucus change? And yeah. they're like, what? Oh, I'm like, here for all the words. Yeah, let's, just, oh, I love, yeah. let's, think, let's know, talk discharge. Mucus, let's yeah. just yeah. go yeah. straight there, mucus, girl. Your <laughs> mucus changes, your mood changes. I said, know what a normal cycle is for you. And I do think sometimes the pill and things can mess up because we've all been on those for I years mean, of our life that you don't know what a normal cycle exactly. is for I think, you. Exactly, I think that's critical because <laughs> I have, um, seeing as we're, we've, we've now gone there, so I have a copper coil with yeah. uh, no, no hormones. Yeah. Oh, I'm a marina, and, so um, hey. And um, I and I, I love it. It's brilliant. It suits my life. I don't have problematic periods. So it's, it's perfect for me. But I realised actually when I got it that it was the first time in my life I wasn't, didn't have yeah. artificial hormones in me because I'd had the combined pill, the mini pill. I'd had the ring. I'd had, I'd had all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And when I got the copper coil after I had my children, I thought actually this is the first time I've really mm. felt known yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. I was on the pill from the time I was uh, 17 until I was 31. And it wasn't until a former boss that I had was like, if you're on the, get off the pill, get a, get a, you know, get an IUD. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll do whatever you tell me. Um, <laughs> and then I stopped taking the pill and it was like, oh, like I genuinely felt, I remember sitting in therapy and being like, I feel different. Mm. And that is terrifying to me and then when you do the research into the marina it's oh it's 0.0007 percent of whatever hormone is in your bloodstream as compared to the pill and i was like oh cool fine but if anything i've always had very very heavy periods and mm. bad cramps i haven't but i also don't know when the fuck my period's ever going to show up yeah. and Which what is my cycle really is. And I use the app. Yeah. I'm yes, like, I don't know when my PMS is. I don't know American PMS. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know when anything is meant to be happening. Yeah. And it's, weird, it's it? so, I feel so disconnected now from like normal. reading your book and just this conversation. I'm like sweating because I'm like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening with but anything. Really the contraception... Like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, as you were saying, I don't want to dog contraception because I love we contraception. We need it. Very much. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. must be particularly galling for Eleanor to have to take contraception because she doesn't have male partners. That no. would be really annoying. <laughs> yeah, that's Although, my God, the conversations that you have to have yeah. in clinics, it's, are you sexually active? I'm like, yep. Are you on any form of contraception? No. And I just sort of play the waiting game. Yeah, and until like, the penny drops. Yeah, and they're like, oh, why not? I'm like, well, my partner's a woman. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. But it, every single time, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, whatever, I don't really But it must be particularly to galling to not have that upside to contraception or not need that well, upside. yeah, and it's interesting. I speak to other women with female partners that it's kind of, you almost feel, it sometimes feels a bit odd that you have to take this, you know, that there's only one option and it's kind of this, it's not related to how we have sex. You know, mm. it's kind of, but it is what it is. You know, you take what's available um, but going on, like, on the back of what you said, I think this idea, certainly one of the biggest things for me writing this was accepting that I am a kind of series of 
rhythms, if that makes sense. Yeah. And sometimes they're steady, sometimes they're not. My cycle is really regular, which is kind of good for me to track things. Mm. But yeah, jealous. <laughs> but I think, you know, the whole world, you know, nature exists in rhythms. And I think it's a really disorientating thing as a woman yeah. to not have it. Mm-hmm. And to sort of, even if you don't feel good, you know, at various points of your cycle... It is a. It feels like a real sort of fundamental thing to miss. Yeah, like I'm like, is this like the whole thing? Like, is this me? I'm like, okay, well, I have this other thing going on. I get quite anxious about this, that, and the other, and I'm constantly playing like this, like extreme detective game with my own moods and my own feelings, mm. and I never know is it. And then sometimes I look on my app and I'm like, well, it's been 51 freaking days since I last had a period, so I don't know yeah. if this is PMT. What is this? Yeah. Like, is this uh, Amalia? Is yeah. this is this common? I was talking to a friend of mine who suffers from the same thing as Kate, and she was saying it feels like you don't know when somebody's going to knock on the door and expect to come in for dinner. You don't know where to tidy yeah. up. You don't know where to put your makeup on. You don't know yeah. whether Which to pants wash to put the dishes, on. Yeah. Or whether to start the dinner. It's this constant threat of somebody turning up unannounced. You're not knowing when it's happening. Is yeah. that quite common? I think it is, because I think with something like the Myrena, if... It takes it takes away the monthly cycle. So some people get, and everybody's different. So some women have regular periods on it. They have a twenty eight day cycle as right. normal. Some good for them <laughs> bleed all the time. Some get random spotting every now and again, and some women get nothing. So that's why a lot of people recommend it because well, fab, you don't get periods. This is great. Is it great is in it terms though? of if you're having massive hemorrhaging every month? Then yes, it's a good <laughs> choice, but. As you say, you get a bit, oh, I don't know when. And, and I say if you try and just track, roughly most people cycle is 28 days. Yeah. So the kind of things <coughs> you're looking for, I say, is breast tenderness, bit of bloating, those things. Because you will still I eat still so much kind bread, though, get, man. I know. So it's like, is this a game that's to play? Like, I had a bowl of pasta last night. Well, I'm bloated, but is this me premenstrual or is this the pasta? Literally, so, like, what is, what is it? It is. It is. There's no period. easy way to know what's causing it. I think when... And, and you may just be very balanced, so you don't have any symptoms. I, mean, I don't think are. it's that. You just never know. Well, exactly. You just don't know. So, you know, some people don't get any PMT. They've never had PMT. I they d- have I, a regular 28-day cycle. Yeah. Right. I've never had it. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I've had so many conversations doing this book, and actually you um, saying that. I think it's really important that we address that in yeah. these conversations, um, that it's, you know, there is no one way of being I mean in the literal sense being a kind of physical flesh Mm. and blood woman you know two different women with identity you know same age same composition will react so differently to things they're you know no two women's experiences are the same and I've met women for this you know interviewing for this book that don't know you know I talk about PMS and they're like get hungry and horny Exactly, yeah. hungry and horny. Our constant that's states. It. Hungry, <laughs> yeah. hungry and horny is basically it. I You're don't, alive. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I. That's the only thing I understand about. Uh, yeah. I can relate to about PMS, but the rest, like, I don't understand, or I never did understand mm. the anger and mm. the anxiety and paranoia or sensitivity or tearfulness. I just didn't know what people were talking mm. about mm. until, and I still don't have it I think mm. but until my hormones in another way mm. started messing me around and then and then I realized 
And this is why I felt such guilt about it, that hormones are basically everything. They sort of govern everything. I mean, am I dramatising? I feel like they they do. Hormones are the chemical... I mean, to put it right, they're chemical messengers in the body. So they have hundreds of functions, maybe more hundreds of the body. It's not just sex hormones. No, I, I mean, mean nothing. There's... People think hormones, they think, oh, angry, they think hungry. Yeah. You know, hormones, we're talking about your metabolism, your immune system, your your ovaries, your fertility cycle, your mood, your fat deposition. You know, all of these things, affect our hormones affect every part of the body. And, that, and then that, in turn, is our... Sli- it's basically how we function. They are really the root of how we function as humans and everybody is different so I think you know it's like when I talk about the menopause with people we've not even gone to that yeah we haven't even that's a a whole other I'm gonna make you talk briefly about it before you run away because because this inevitably this is why I went to the London Hormone Clinic I thought okay I'm I'm going through the menopause so I did all the googling decided that that must be what was happening because I couldn't think of anything else it turned out I wasn't it was something else but that's what I went with with a slightly heavy heart but also just thinking okay well that's an answer that's Mm. something I can do something with and I felt very strange about it. I didn't feel bereft for my childbearing years or all the kind of cliche things you're meant to feel. I I think I was nervous that I was going to become kind of invisible. Mm. Everything I read by younger women was a bit, yay, no more periods, and this kind of slightly wistful look at, at the menopause, which I didn't identify with at all. It just felt like the end of something but it wasn't really childbearing Hmm. and it's just a really confusing time I thought I was going a bit mad I thought is this me now and of course I found out I wasn't going through the menopause but it did give me a great deal of empathy for women who are and what an incredibly Hmm. kind of upside down topsy-turvy feeling that must be presumably this is a common reason for people coming to see you yeah I think probably I say it used to be probably 80% of our patients were over 50 menopausal women and that's where kind of bioidentical hormones or body identical stemmed from was the menopause. And over the years, I mean, even in the years that I've been doing it, my age bracket of patients that I treat is now 20. That's really interesting. That is interesting. You know, I had a lady the other day who was in her 70s and has been having hot flushes for the last 20 years. Oh, God. just didn't do anything. And wasn't sure what she could do and didn't really want to take conventional HRT um so uh, what i always say to people it's a different journey for everybody you know you will have people that have never suffered with their hormones they had regular 28 day cycles felt great got to the menopause boom hell mm. struck hot flushes night sweats went crazy all the symptoms and and they and they they're like oh my god what is this like what well, i've i felt fine all these years what's suddenly happening to me and then you have women who their periods stop and they're like, oh, no, I'm fine. You know, never had a hot flush, never had a sweat, yeah. never had a... We're all different. So mm. I think it's it's about knowing yourself and knowing your own body. It's about knowing what to do, not being afraid of asking or talking to... And I think more women talk about it now than they yeah. ever used to. So, mm. you know, I our generation I still think probably is, not enough. Probably not, not enough. enough. But, yeah. you know, going back probably when would they've done radio show about hormones you know, yeah i think ago. there is a real Never, that it, w- it wouldn't have existed it it's now something that people are going to talk about and embracing it as you say it's about this is what i am and optimizing what you can do to keep your body healthy if that makes sense so there are things as you can say like we, we touched on spending loads and loads of money people come in they've gone to a nutritionist had yes. thousands of pounds yeah. and i'm not saying nutritionist i refer to a really good nutritionist um 
they have thousands of pounds of tests go away with hundreds of supplements yes then go and see an acupuncturist and a homeopath yeah. and a kinesiologist and that's all what makes these me people. cross and yeah. and people do and there are a lot of they're dodgy doctors they're dodgy lawyers they're dodgy nutritionists there's people out there yeah. I think you need to it's important to go to somebody that knows what they're doing who look at the whole approach so if nutrition's an issue most people need their nutrition addressed a little bit very few people eat really really well and knowing the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist yes. dietitians mm-hmm. are qualified anybody can call themselves a nutritionist yes that was a really you know that's been a massive thing for me i love food i eat so much and i cook yeah i'm the greediest i'm saying, girl, so, same. so greedy same, yeah. and i eat you know i eat very well i think yeah. i love cooking i love cooking but so much you yeah. know i'll have like two or three portions of dinner i mean that's the norm yeah um, but you know it's healthy mostly it's like you know vegetables lots of yeah. curry you know yeah and I'm pretty you know I I know nutrition I think I thought mm. until mm. I went to see this guy and there were these subtle changes that actually I was almost annoyed mm. that they did have I'd like to effect. know what those are and which subtle changes or, or dramatic yes. changes Amalia is most likely to recommend obviously you mentioned sugar but mm. w- but what are you doing differently so I kind of have ongoing, if we're, we're among friends, we're sharing. Of course. We've discussed the inside of my fanny, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I've had kind of chronic gut issues since my appendix burst when I was younger. It was pretty spectacular and I almost died and they took out like a foot of my bowel. Yeah. Oh. So since then, everything's been kind of fucked. Yeah. In there. yeah. I've had a couple of... Um, bowel obstructions where they've had to go in and kind of separate which is really tissue. dangerous isn't really it? dangerous yeah. I mean literally presenting to hospital full of shit in more ways than one um, and they've had to kind of yeah operate. is that your third book full of shit it, it might as well be yeah um, so I have kind of ongoing issues with my gut which is annoying as someone who really likes to eat mm. but the, a change, the change for me has been introducing more fermented things. Yeah. Such as? Such as miso, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, certain drinks. Kefir's like a kefir. good one, yeah. Um, like I drink this water kefir drink. Yeah. And all of it is actually reasonably cheap. A lot of it you can kind of do yourself. Make miso is really cheap. Miso is super cheap. But it genuinely, genuinely has made a difference to my movements yeah and that in turn actually something i found really interesting that i came across in the literature there is actually a reasonable evidence base for it that if you're kind of chronically constipated fuck it i can't believe i'm talking about this on the radio i love it um oh i'm always constipated Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um emotionally and physically. Um, so i found it when i went to the marrying book clinic and when i spoke to this nutritionist and then in turn my gp was that if you're always constipated actually you're not metabolizing yeah. your hormones properly yeah. and that actually was like oh yeah it was a real light bulb moment now, that yeah. if you're full of shit you're full of shit yeah <laughs> literally and it's kind yeah. of you know since i things have been uh, easier yeah. um i do find that i don't the peaks and troughs are not That's, i've kind of shaved yeah. the edges off them yeah. and it makes i mean chemi- you know kind of chemically it makes sense that if mm. you're that you're not excreting you're not getting rid of these big mm-hmm. peaks mm-hmm. of hormones mm-hmm. 
Um, your bowels and your liver are your, and that's kind of why I do a lot of stuff around it, around hormones, because your bowels and your liver are your two big organs that if they're not functioning, they're where your hormones get processed and metabolised out. You can picture if everything's slow, you're not metabolising things out fast enough. So you have to look at diet, like you say, and often that's the last bit of everyone. Or people yeah. say, well, I've done this, I've done that. You have to look at time. And it's, it's pretty simple. Like, that's pretty much what you said. Which so is, Eleanor mentions fermented things. Yeah. You mm. mentioned, obviously, more vegetables. Yeah. What else are you typically recommending? And that's it. So generally what I say is a lower-carb diet. So <laughs> generally what I recommend, because everyone's laughing, like, it's crying. Yeah. And it's not never... Life is about balance. You know, I'm it also is. a doctor that's not... Never eat... You, you sometimes go and see a nutritionist, like, you're never allowed to eat, drink, yeah, alcohol, eat a sugar, thumb full of everything. cheese. Just not gonna, like, I would just yeah. turn on a sixpence and be like, there's <laughs> yeah. no point us so having So it has to be yeah. something yeah. that is reasonable. So that's why I'll go through what's a normal breakfast, lunch and dinner. Generally more protein-based foods. So... Mm. I personally, this is my opinion, I'm saying this on radio, I don't think vegan and things necessarily help your hormones purely because you end up eating lots of carb. It's very yeah. difficult to... Well, I'm a vegetarian it, yeah. and and, so and it, it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. hard yeah. to keep the protein stuff because yeah. everybody always says chicken and fish. Every, everyone yeah. always says that, well, those aren't an option. So what yeah. am I... Do- I mean, there's only so much cheese I can eat. And of course, I do give it a bloody good go. <laughs> <laughs> she tries. <laughs> and I love nuts and things like yeah. that. But when you're cooking a meal, yeah. it's yeah. tough. It is difficult. And I think that's where sometimes seeing a really good will help get your proteins and things because you don't want to then have too much grains and carby you know so yeah. sweet potato thing your your bases become a lot of carb yeah which turns to sugar yeah and then messes everything up so lots of green veg you know lots of so probiotics natural ones so and life is just, hard just for the record that, kate is literally wincing, wincing I'm, like, her I'm just like oh my lost yeah. she's gone yeah. no i just yeah keep please keep talking Pro, probi- i want to hear everything you have to say are massively helpful yeah. so i started taking probiotics at the same time i started yeah. um looking into this properly and i found them massively helpful i used yeah. to get cystitis every couple of weeks and now yeah. i don't cystitis is like your Full of the devil. It's just oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. You, mm. There's nothing you can tell me about cystitis, Eleanor Morgan. I am the world's, <laughs> <laughs> I am the world's leading sufferer of cystitis. Um, I've never no, had I used it. to get it literally every three weeks. There was one point last year. I think I took antibiotics for cystitis eight times. We shouldn't be taking antibiotics yeah. eight well, that's times. That's going to affect yeah. your, your bowels. And yeah, everything. exactly. It's just not good. But I found probiotics incredibly helpful. Mm. I think. The kind of the gut stuff, the microbiome yeah. stuff, is massive. Is yeah. massive, and I think that really is the kind of new frontier of healthful stop. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I'm training as a psychologist now. I'm working as an assistant psychologist, and you know, the m- modern. Psych- I love how far you went to just work out what the hell was going yeah. on with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just became a psychologist. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah, <laughs> ten grand down the drain, whatever. Um, <laughs> But nutrition is, you know, and kind of thinking genuine, you know, the genuine meaning of holistic and kind of looking at a person as a three dimensional thing. Nutrition and all of this gut stuff really feels like I'm sure you'll agree. Mm. It feels like the, the new frontier of medicine everything i so agree mm-hmm. everything seems to be coming now towards hormones and yeah. gut and it's it? the everything shifting yeah. but why wouldn't it be if yeah. the gut is the hub yeah of and your entire the, body why wouldn't it be that? it's the porous you know you yeah. absorb 
almost everything. And the liver, I think, is, yeah. comes into that. Really? Liver. Well, I started, everyone at work was laughing, so I started celery juicing now, because that's like the in thing on Instagram. Of, But it kind of makes sense, as a guy in the States that does, because it cleanses out the liver. So basically what you do is you drink a pint, like a big glass of organic celery, juice it every morning and drink that before you do anything. Like, no oh tea, my coffee, God. water, anything. I think I'd vom. And well, yeah, you for just sure. Have to do. It's a bit like doing a tequila shot, I always say. You've just got yeah, to... It's not the like fun that part. Part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, I find tequila that fun. I find it a bit painful. I could do a shot of but celery juice. Yeah. 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 yeah, give me yeah. a shot. But it's pint. all about cleansing, you know, that when you get up in the morning is the first thing you put into your body. You're trying to cleanse everything out and get rid of the toxins. So, whereas what most people do drink and coffee is not necessarily bad, but up coffee, sugar, donut, toast, everything, and just from the Sounds minute gorgeous. we wake up, the yeah, it's just <laughs> like all mm. the taste things. But you know, it's never to say never. I never say to people you must never eat bread again or you never eat a donut again. But the mainstay of your diet, you have to. We have to look at what we eat because. Yeah, I you know, it's, without being cheesy, we are what we eat. So what you put into your body will have a direct impact on your hormones and your health and your mood. And, and you say when you're hungry, you know, I always say to people, never go and get lunch when you're hungry because you cre- your brain tricks you. So oh, when yeah. you're hungry, you don't look at a salad and go, mm-mm, that, that's what I want. For yeah, lunch. it makes you, me you angry get, yeah, when I look I, at a I salad. I Instant gratification. Salad at people. So I generally do, I, I make my lunches, but... You, you know, when you go to prep or wherever it is you go, yeah. you, you, your eyes are going to the baguette because your brain's saying, God, I'm hungry. I need, I need something quick. Or you need yeah. energy. You I need, need the energy. And yeah. so it's yeah. looking at bread going, that's what I want. That's what I want. It's not looking at a salad going, hmm, this is what I need. The but... hungry thing is really key, I think. That was such a massive yeah. thing for me, learning that actually when I'm hungry, I'm so suboptimal. Yeah. And... You know the kind of the hangry thing yeah. is real. Yeah. Isn't oh it? yeah, the hormone is it for ghrelin? Sure. Ghrelin, yeah, that you yeah. um, that you release in your yeah. gut, which you know I've read about some really interesting studies where they injected rats with ghrelin and actually it you know like a hunger hormone if you want to call it that and it made mm. them really stressed and upset. Yeah. You know, Damn. it has a direct... I'm hungry all the I was just thinking, time. I was like, I'm hungry. Always. I think I'm, I'm suboptimal right now. So, so protein. Constantly. So really, if you, you need more protein, and that's what stops it. So, I mean, I'm a big... And everybody's different. I think there's no right... I'm not saying that what I say people is, is the right thing to do. I generally get people to follow more of a keto-based diet, So, which is difficult when you're vegetarian. I get that. So, you, and, and now... There's a really good website I use called Diet Doctor that gives people meal plans oh, yeah, and it I've has a that. vegetarian. Bit. Okay, I'm going to do that. And you need more protein if you're blo- if you're hungry all the time. Mm-hmm. Your your hormone levels are up and down, and your sugar levels and your insulin levels are going up and down. I think I'm just fucked in this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this it's it's thing to us, I'm yeah. like, oh my changing. god. Yeah, it's, okay, but also I feel maybe like you're having a real kind of I'm moment of clarity. I'm, on it. It. Like, I'm obsessed with Amalia. Like um, Amalia has to go, so I'm going to put a record on, um, and we'll come back. Eleanor Morgan and Kate. Severe will still be here. Um, Dr. Amalia Anaradnam is based at the London Hormone Clinic, where I go and I pay like a normal patient. Um, but I'm so glad that you came. Will you come back? I feel like there's just yeah. too much. I definitely will. Yeah, I feel yeah, like there's just too it's much a, to it's talk. Kind of, yeah, it's a big topic. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I am going to put on a record which basically sums up the beginning and end of my understanding of PMS.
That was Constant Craving by K.D. Lang. Um, I've suddenly started listening to Ingenue, K.D. Lang's album, all the mm. time again. For absolutely the first time amazing. in years, mm. and it remains absolutely brilliant from start to finish. It's a perfect album, I think. So good. So good. Uh, so this is Sally Hughes. I'm still here with uh, my co-host Kate Sevier and Eleanor Morgan, who uh, writes for all sorts of publications, including mine. So she's written for The Guardian, The Observer, The Times, Elle, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, da da da, everyone. But we are here to talk about her new book, which is called Hormonal, about her sort of voyage of discovery and kind of an investigative journalism piece, really, mm. into how we handle hormones within the NHS and in private practice. Um, Eleanor has been on her own sort of journey, uh, journey. with hormones. But one, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the book is this disparity in how women's hormone problems are treated by healthcare professionals versus how male hormone problems mm. are treated. Mm. Um, as ever, there's, there's a disparity in terms of the medication given, the time given and so on. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think this will be familiar for lots of women. Do you mean in terms of kind of women going into like see their GP or... Yeah, and I think I read in your book that women are tend to be under-drugged when something oh, yes, is... yes, that, that whole world of stuff. Yeah, it's... It, when you start looking at the literature, a really sort of quite sinister picture emerges and there's a real crossover in the research with mine and Caroline Criado-Perez's. Yes, mm. yes, there yes, is. So um, all of the kind of, you know, medical model stuff... So when it, you know when I saw that all of her stuff, I was like, on the one hand, I was like, oh shit, she's got there first. But then <laughs> was like, oh, amazing, actually. Yeah. The yeah. more it's out there, more. the better. Um, but yeah, there's kind of there's a lot of really quite disturbing data coming out of the US that shows that women are kind of systemically underdrugged, like you say, in terms of pain relief. I can't remember the exact details of this study but there is a big one um that women presenting to emergency departments are i wish i'd looked at the facts before i came on but the, <laughs> gen the general gist is that there is this kind of expectation that women have this kind of inbuilt well of pain tolerance yeah and i think it relates think to true, yeah. childbirth it mm -hmm. relates to all sorts of things and but you know the stark reality is that women presenting to emergency departments having heart attacks because they present slightly differently to men are not being treated how they need to be as quick as they need to be and are not getting pain relief that they need because there is this kind of in the fabric of the whole system there is this sense that women should be able to deal with more and that a woman if she if she's suffering if she can't deal with more if she's in pain the idea that if she's asking and making a fuss She's then immediately dismissed as kind of difficult and oh, you know, a hypochondriac and a hypochondriac. But actually, this the the research shows that women are often sedated more than men. Yeah, and it's you like, mentioned that in the book yeah. that, that men are given more kind of constructive drugs yes. and that women are almost Knocked treated out. in that Victorian way as <laughs> hysterics. Yeah, it's yeah. the kind of if you're quiet, if you're kind of immobile, you're easier to deal with. Yeah, and it's it's. I have a friend who's a consultant surgeon in the NHS. I, it, I didn't put it into the book, but we've had kind of anecdotal conversations about this. And she said it's so, it's so true that there really is this kind of stigma that no one really talks about. She says it's this kind of invisible thing that actually women who are making a fuss with pain 
And she said actually often they don't, but if they are, there is this sense among doctors of, oh, you know, this woman is, you know, she's a bit of a handful. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and she said she's seen that in women who are, you know, their appendixes have burst. And it's like, well, yeah, she's a handful because she's experiencing the worst pain of her life. Um, There's an immediate distrust that what yes. women say is not true. And uh, across the board with so many different things. And I was just listening to a podcast with um, Aubrey Plaza talking about having strokes. And the first time she had a stroke and she couldn't verbalize because the blood clot was in the language center of her Mm. brain. Her friends thought she was like doing a comedic bit. Like, (sighs) oh, just pretending that I can't talk. And it took a very long time like much longer than it should have for someone to actually pick up the phone and, and call her an ambulance. I find I find the balance of it all really tricky. I think there's an inbuilt expectation of stoicism, I think, Absolutely. With, with women. And I am naturally like that anyway. And so when I had both my babies, I became quite cat-like. I didn't want anyone to talk to me. I didn't want anyone to touch me. I just wanted to go into the corner of my living room and have my yeah. children, which is what in I your did. Shoebox. Yeah. I am just that person. I just get out of my face. Don't you dare try and massage my feet. Don't try and play <laughs> me panpipes or whatever it is. Just let me go and have my babies. Okay, no panpipes. But then, but then I found that had its downsides because I found that when I was trying to get help for these hormonal issues that came much later I couldn't get it across that I was really upset and that this was quite a dramatic thing and so I just kept saying I feel very sad I feel very unwell I feel very down I feel very sorrowful and literally in the same conversation the doctor would say well you don't seem to be presenting any symptoms it's like well didn't you hear me I just said I'm really 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 I just told you sir and I almost felt like I wasn't crying enough or I wasn't I, I wasn't being showy enough so there seems to be this ludicrous clutch biting point where yes. you mustn't be too hysterical but you yeah. also mustn't be too stoical because yeah. then they think you're fine where well, you're meant to just have like a single tear yes. rolling down your face or something one little mm-hmm. lip wobble yeah. yeah so then they really know that it's true yeah. but it's so i think it's so interesting too uh, it reminded me of a, a conversation that i had with my own therapist about resilience and if you are uh if you had uh you know childhood trauma or quite a difficult childhood as like who didn't um you are more resilient as an adult but if you're resilient and you can just get on with stuff you then are kind of lacking the visibility from other people when there is something actually oh, well, wrong. This was my entire therapy in a nutshell. <laughs> because people don't, people just assume I'm fine yep. because I'm not showy. Yeah, and that and and that's a really difficult thing, and it's especially difficult with healthcare. Mm. Yes, because if you're not. If the optics are not there, that people just assume you're fine and you'll get on with it. And that is something yeah. you learn from quite a traumatic childhood. Yeah. And overall, as women being not our, in our feelings and our thoughts and everything being not as visible, visible, not as historically visible, where like healthcare professionals, where, like where is the, like where are they taught? Like, like, I just don't feel like the representation of of women and pain and believing what we say is just not the norm. It's endemic. It is absolutely endemic. And it goes to, like, Invisible Women. Mm -hmm. You know, that is the absolute thrust of that whole book. It's kind of... It goes right to the top of kind of how medicine and bodies are taught. And the whole model is male. Mm -hmm. You know, male is the default. And you kind of learn, um, you know, like our guest was saying, and, you know, friends I know that are doctors you do learn the kind of broad brushstrokes of of what it means to have a female body. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of the kind of subtle intricacies in terms of interaction with mood 
and stuff it's all it's i think it's quite cursory and the whole you know this is what i feel very passionate about all the time is kind of the the very medical model of female distress Mm -hmm. doesn't work for most women it might work for some women fantastic if it does if you can take a pill if you can take the combined pill or something and feel well as women do then fantastic that's brilliant yeah it's a sense just as you talked about the sedation and now you're talking about the contraceptive pill there's there's a sense of okay just just dumb it down just just dull it down just sort Mm -hmm. of put some tarp or over yeah. it. Never mind what the reason is yes, or the exactly. root cause. Just, ju- just make it go away in the immediate. Yes. Yeah. There have been, I'm, I'm trying to think, when we were talking about stress before, what struck me is that I, about you know a year ago, two years ago, was dealing with quite a lot of stress and I didn't realise it was stress. Mm. I was getting these weird like twinges in my neck and in my throat and they immediately thought it was, oh, maybe it's your heart. Maybe there's a cardio thing happening here. And they did my blood work and there was nothing wrong with my blood work. I had an eye twist. Anyway, I ended up going and seeing a physiotherapist who literally taught me how to breathe. And that helped. My yoga teacher at the time helped because she like built upon what he was talking about breathing and where I should be feeling it in my body when I'm breathing. But even then, I'm like, cool, that helped. But but why? Like, what was that thing that was happening to my body? Because I don't know what stress. it was. I mean, stress can. Act. There's no. There's no getting away from the fact that there's a massive resource issue here. I think mm. what what I don't want to say is. I don't want to sound as though I'm kind of crapping on doctors because the re- because, <laughs> Not again. because the resource yeah, I am because <laughs> because should. a massive causal issue here is funding. Yeah. And we know that the least likely area of medicine to be funded is mental health. We know, mm-hmm. we know that that's not a priority and that will, um, for the foreseeable, not be a priority. We're not seeing any signs that that's hiking itself up. And so there's there's a class division, isn't there? We You know, we've just been talking to the most brilliant GP who specialises in this stuff, but she's in private practice because mm-hmm. she can't focus on what she's interested in within the NHS. So what you have then is you have, with menopause, for example, or PMS, yeah. you have women with money having a nicer time, potentially, than, yes. than women with no money. I think that, yeah, it's vital that we think about that. I think... You know, was uh, that kind of class, economic, socio-economic divide something you came across when oh, you were putting together yeah, the book? Massively, massively. I think most women are going to be getting healthcare from an NHS GP. That is just a fact, mm-hmm. and it's not only rich-ish middle-class women um, who go through the menopause or who have. You know, we're talking about half the population here, and a woman living on. You know you know living on benefits in uh you know in a kind of deprived yeah. area yeah is going to be having a different experience but you know elements of the same experience um but yeah money money can get you dedicated you know much longer consultations and it's a sad it's a sad reality and i think i think uh, i think you've hit the nail on the head there because actually the drugs are very often the same the treatments very often the same but what you get are. is time you get yeah that's exactly it you get it. someone's ear you get someone's ear you get um and actually that's what i was really struck by when i went to the marion gluck clinic was how welcome and how kind of how much of an individual i felt when i went and had this kind of 40-minute consultation with this woman where I could actually really sort of offload. Mm. And that in and of itself, 
I think is part of what makes it so appealing is that it feels really individualised. You felt heard, seen. You, you know, they kind of look at you as a kind of, you know, a woman with a, a, a body and a reproductive system, but also a woman occupying a wider system. And it's just, you, you feel seen. And I think that's, I mean, there are fantastic GPs and doctors in the NHS. That, I mean, there's thousands yeah. of them. Yeah. But it's, you know, they might just not have enough time. They might not have, you know, if, if so like you're talking about the medication, the bioidentical hormone drugs, I think it's important to clarify this. They are available. Yes, they on are. On the NHS. You can get them. And it is the same preparation. But it's kind of, it's this... Who knows how to ask for, you know, unless you're kind of, unless you have the information, how would you know what to say? I had no idea before writing this book that what a bioidentical hormone drug was. And it's kind of now I know, I feel more equipped, you know, I'd feel more equipped to ask about it. Can you kind of explain what it is? Can you explain after this record? Because I'm so desperate for a pee, I can (laughs) no longer breathe. (laughs) Um, Let's go um, for some Björk. Since I met you, this that was regret by New Order, and before that we had Violently Happy. Everything's a feeling today. On so my many feelings. My press release. What the hell am I talking about? My playlist. God, we were just talking about press releases while I was listening to Never, never off. Never journalism. No. Um, We're still here with Eleanor Morgan, writer of a brilliant new book called Hormonal. It's so interesting. Really, really interesting. Mm. I feel like um, at the moment I get so many books sent to me. There's a zeitgeisty thing happening at the moment in women's publishing where there are tons and tons of period books. If you're interested in periods, fabulous buy them except this is so not that I really want to get that right. yeah it's, it's so not that it's no. so in its own category it's it an exploration of hormones and how they affect us and they do affect us in literally every conceivable way but of course if you're a sufferer of PMS there's tons tons in there for you but it's a much bigger thing than that and I really would urge any woman in particular to read it or anyone who has a loved one who has some kind of hormonal issue who has a difficult time during their periods or is going through the menopause or has some other hormonal issue it's really really enlightening that means a lot no, Thank it's you. it's really great. It is really, yeah, really genuinely, great. yeah. It's it comes out tomorrow, by the way. If you yeah. want to buy, buy it, I, I buy really it strongly buy it right now. It came into my life at, a, at just the right time, I think, when I was really ready to um, mm. to learn about this stuff. Mm, same. Do you think there's lots in the book about how slow we are to take women's hormones seriously? Did you feel as you were writing the book, were there any hopeful moments where you thought, actually, something is shifting here? Things are moving on a smidge? Yeah, I think so. I think there is a tentative... I think what's happening, like you're saying about the kind of publishing trend... I mean, publishing always works like that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, does. mm-hmm. There's Absolutely. waves of things like kids' names. Yeah. You kind of, you know, a, a mum might call their little boy Milo and think, oh, I'm the first to do that. And then you sort of hear it popping out everywhere. Um but yeah, I think what's happening is that conversation, you know, the conversations are starting to happen, not just on a micro level among women. I mean, that was the kind of driver behind, you know, writing the proposal to this book is that I felt like 
that me and the women I know, kind of friends, family, colleagues, whatever, we were always having these conversations about all of this stuff in private and kind of like, oh, thank God we can talk about it. And it's like, but actually, people's private, women's private realities, you know, lots of women are really suffering. And actually, yeah. until this becomes a wider conversation, you know, the, the private experience will be pained yeah. still. But in terms of hopeful, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. I think it's a whole paradigm shift. And I think it's, it's going to take a long time. But what feels encouraging is people are talking. And I think it kind of is getting to a point where it doesn't feel as taboo to be talking about periods, hormones, and I think just emotion in general, and yes. just kind of variation. Having feelings. Having huh. feelings, but just variation in emotion and how actually our brains on a kind of neurochemical level, we are not supposed to be happy all the time. No. It's just not how we're designed. It's impossible, but yet from when we're so small happiness as the default is the message and it's kind of yeah. you know oh when I grow up I want to be happy and it's you know happy feeling happy is an amazing thing and it comes in all different shades but actually this constant struggle for kind of equilibrium is where all of the torture is yeah and that goes not you know that's for men and women I, yeah. I try I, I try to be much more aware of that as a parent, I try not to say I just want you to be happy. Yeah, that's mm. because that's that that's the thing that we all want as parents. Of course, yeah, you of want course. you want your children to be happy. But a few years ago, I sort of decided to stop saying it so much because actually mm. that's not possible all of the time, and I don't want my kids to think that that's the goal that we're all striving for all and that the they're time. doing something wrong and if they don't feel that way wrong, yeah. or that something is wrong when yes. they're not happy because yeah. actually it isn't necessarily no, that's, you're totally that's right normal i think it's, <laughs> it's a lot of pressure i think to put on someone i need you to be happy i want you to be happy yes. because i think i think then you start to panic if you're not and you start trying to medicalize or treat or fix it when you're not or become a de- like you said earlier and that's really struck me actually that you use the word detective of you know you become a detective of your <laughs> your own emotions and I think that's such that's such a common thing and I do you know I kind of work in therapeutic mm-hmm. world now and I have regular therapy you know for personal reasons and as part of that so yeah. all of this stuff is in my mind all the time but I think the the real torture if you're kind of if you live with any kind of mental distress is in find trying to constantly think why why do I feel like this yes and it's actually there is never going to be a neat answer. Sometimes, you know, it's like if you're bereaved or, you know, if you're living with an illness or something, then there is a much clearer link. But there's never any one thing that makes you feel... Depression is not usually circumstantial, is it? It, There's not normally a thing that's happened that's caused you to... You may be triggered by something, but the underlying issue is not, oh, well, my house was burgled or or whatever it is. Generally... It's something much deeper than that. Yeah, I think, I think what we, you know, in kind of psychology, you talk about where they use the word, we use the word propensity. It's kind of you have, you have, you know, you have something within you, the product of, you know, myriad things, genes, environment, your upbringing, what you eat. Economics. Economics, you know, how, your socioeconomic status, um, 
it, it's just that there's so many things you can't even you can't count how many things could be contributing to a, a low mood feeling anxious so you talking about your your kids is really interesting because i think in society even though the conversation about mental health has become so much more nuanced i still think that we sort of we sort of weirdly fetishize being happy well i also think we feel entitled to it when we're not because we're we're not entitled (laughs) to feel happy because it's not a natural state all of the time no No. it's impossible and it's kind of i think what you said about telling your you have two boys Mm. it's i think the idea that if you feel anxious or sad or sort of wistful nostalgic and it feels a bit uncomfortable that you're disappointing me as a mother yeah or or like you said that there's something inherently wrong and actually you know sometimes yeah people live with you know real significant mental distress and it affects every part of their life you know physically mentally it's it's you know it can be debilitating but feeling anxious or sad doesn't mean there's something wrong. It doesn't always mean that there's no, something wrong. No, and there's wrong. this sort of narrative around, you must get rid of it. If you're feeling anxious, yes, you must get rid of it. Absolutely. And it's like, actually, no, anxiety can be really useful because it can Massively. help signal to you Massively. what else is going on yeah. with you or your body or the current yeah. situation. So I get really irritated when I listen to a lot of podcasts when people are constantly mm. like, how do I get rid of my anxiety? I won't drink coffee because of my anxiety. But and also it's like, it's like bacteria. If you, don't, if you don't build up some kind of... Yeah. That. tolerance that's for a it, the resilience then, then you're screwed mm-hmm. yeah. you know it, it's like couples who never argue or whatever and then the moment they How argue boring. then, then divorce is on the cards you have yeah. to be exposed yeah. to some some germs yes and so that's, if, such, that's a good analogy if you have a natural um propensity towards anxiety or sadness or paranoia and you just have to stamp it out then ha- where will your coping mechanisms come from when you can't stamp it out yep it's absolutely Learning to live with uncertainty and learning to sort of sit with yes. uncomfortable feelings yes. has been, you know, professionally in terms of kind of helping people do that and personally helping myself. And it is an ongoing thing and will be till I die, mm-hmm. I imagine, um, is is the whole that's that's what you often hear psychology people saying the work. It's kind of that's what we do throughout our lives we kind of learn to but sit that's with what's the basis of anxiety therapy isn't it it's yes. acknowledging that it exists and giving it a space in the room but mm-hmm. not allowing it to govern your decisions yeah. Yeah. And... Well, to, and to sit with it and i think that plays into so much of this so hormonal much. stuff with women it's kind of so if you're feeling anxious or irritable or sad or all of those things that you see listed as part of the pms experience it's kind of it's the torture lies in, like you say, trying to stamp it out rather than kind of sitting with it and being a bit more mindful and thinking, you know, why why is this something that I have to get rid of? And then when we can't yeah. get rid of it, it's like, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel like this? It reminds me a lot of the, the body positivity movement. And I have on the show multiple times said, I just aim for body neutrality. Yes. And I think f- mentally having happiness be this sort of, the place that you should be and the place that you should always aim for. It's like, you know what, actually, 
just sort of finding like my baseline neutral feeling Mm -hmm. and if that includes some anxiety or that includes some sadness or some grief if there's something else going on sitting in that and not trying to fight it because as you said a lot of the distress comes from the fighting trying to stamp it out anxiety going that is the that is the fuel that Mm. keeps the cycle Mm -hmm. all of those ruminative spirals that we go into yeah. with anxiety because that's something else that you said in the book is that along with those different hormonal states like moods they're mm. temporary yeah they come, they come and they go. go a mood is not a fixed, they will end yeah. a mm. mood is not a fixed thing and i have to remind myself of that constantly i have a little post-it that i have on my desk that's no mental state is fixed because it, it's impossible yeah. you know on a on a yeah. if we're talking about chemicals on a biochemical level it's impossible out that, yeah. that a mood can... I mean, people who've lived with depression... I mean, I've had a kind of experience of depression when my anxiety kind of got on top of me. And it was it was kind of the, the only time that it's, that it's really sort of fitted as a term for me. And it, it, it was... I, I wouldn't wish that feeling on anyone. No, you know, it's it, awful. It's, and it's, it feels like it will never end. Yeah, yeah it does but actually it's kind of the wealth of experience that you get when you're out of it Mm -hmm. you know I think we have to keep pushing the message that however desperate you feel you know and if it's cyclical desperation that it that it doesn't last it can't yeah and actually what keeps it going is the constantly looking for meaning and the Mm -hmm. constant ascribing meaning to how we feel Mm -hmm. because you know, we could land on anything, but actually accepting and that that's what settles your whole system is if you learn to accept it. And that's the that's the basis of mindful meditation of all of those mindfulness apps. And I think in that world, I think whatever works for you, do it. Yeah. But, you know, doing kind of two or three minutes of, you know, like a mindfulness exercise. I don't do it every day. I should. I do it every few days. Yeah. It. It's it's important, I think. It's mm-hmm. being able to sit with how we feel is the key to... And knowing that it doesn't kill you. <laughs> knowing that it doesn't kill you. Um, I was trying to make my husband come over, but he's ignoring me. Um, the, re- <laughs> the, the reason... Should we just walk the, re- the mic yeah, over no, to him? <laughs> um, so he's popped in. He had a meeting come nearby, on. but he... Um, but am I allowed to say... Had an anxiety disorder... Well, you had an anxiety disorder for a long time, and you I'm just getting you to come over so I don't have to rip off the way you speak about it because you speak about it so much better than me, but you always you always um compare it to having asthma or diabetes, don't you that it's just a thing that you have, and you have to manage it yeah. in that moment not treat it as a strange mystical thing, but it, yes, it is just like well i the, the thing I compared it to the most was um hay fever actually mm, yeah, specifically yeah. because it is anxiety i mean the, the comparison for me with hay fever is that hay fever is obviously something happening in your body that thinks that it is protecting you yes yes um, absolutely the histamines or whatever the thing is of, of things firing off in your body because they think that your body is being attacked and by an aggressor trying to protect your body but in the process of trying to protect your body giving you streaming eyes streaming nose and actually yeah, really like making thanks. life miserable for yeah. you that's and, such a uh, anxiety was yeah. um it's very much the same it's uh it's stuff that's going on uh in your brain which is your brain thinking that it's recognized certain patterns 
or, or things that are threats mm. uh, and acting by sending all this adrenaline around your body yes. to say, yeah. you know, the cell fight or flight thing, um, thinking that it's protecting you from these apparent perceived threats by um, pumping a load of adrenaline around your body to try yeah. and make you run away. But so intellectually but you know the, that going for a drink with some friends is not an aggressor, is not a threat, so your nervous system is telling your body that it is a threat. And so how... So you're accepting that it's in the room, that reaction? Yeah, I mean, that's the... I mean, it's CBT, I did a bit of everything. Um, the thing that I found useful was CBT because, it, yeah, mm. it's sort of saying... This whole thing about not fighting, yes, not well, fighting it, but accepting it is sort of the wrong. It's, people say you sort of accept it. There's an acceptance, but that is, it sounds a little bit zen. When yes. people sort of talk about acceptance. It's not quite that. It's just sort of allowing a thing to happen. The other analogy, um, which is quite useful with that, is the is like the broken smoke alarm. I think it's a bit like that. Like if you know that you're fire alarm goes off all the time even when it shouldn't well, sometimes you just have to live with it it's ringing and you just sort of go all right i'm just gonna have to live with that being there it's not going to change my behavior i'm not going to run around the house looking for a fire i know there isn't a fire i understand that there's a fault with this thing yeah. that mm. thinks it's picked up some smoke but it hasn't and until i can get it fixed i'm just gonna have to live with it ringing for a bit mm. and mm. anxiety for me was a bit like that that you just mm. sort of have to you accommodate it accommodate yeah. is the is a good word don't let it affect your behavior too much i mean it's going to a bit because it's taking a bit of brain space but you just sort of accommodate it and allow it to be there yeah and allow yourself to feel that churn or whatever it is without thinking that it means something massively significant meaning is 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 the big thing it's kind of the meaning we ascribe to how we feel is is where all the discomfort is and i think it's really important that we accept that different language different analogies different kind of conceptualizing uh, conceptualizations of anxiety work for different people yeah. you know everyone yeah. has the right to manage or conceptualize their distress how they want to and i think you know i think often as kind of mental health professionals it's 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 sometimes difficult to remember that but i th- i th- i really think it's important that people have the right to understand their distress or make sense of it how they want to and it's it's interesting that that takes you into an interesting place with um hormonal stuff because there are some women who really find comfort and a kind of scaffolding i suppose to understand their distress with terms like pms and pmdd which is the more severe form of pms what um, does that stand for please premenstrual uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder so it's kind of all of the cyclical symptoms but you know really at the sharp end of the scale and i've interviewed women who have had a diagnosis of that and i interviewed one who had a hysterectomy an elective wow, hysterectomy, wow, yeah. because because she just couldn't live with it but you know i don't i'm not of the kind of school of thought you know i kind of reject diagnoses in terms of but I also accept that people people can do what they want people and can, have to live their lives and have to live their lives and diagnoses particularly in the in, in the NHS are what helps you get to the right treatment and if you don't have a diagnosis you won't get to the person that can help so I think it's I don't I don't think there's a right or wrong in that area but I think it it takes you into some interesting areas of women's health the whole labels thing and diagnosis mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's there's some interesting stuff around borderline personality disorder, which we hear about a lot. We hear, you know, I think in the media we hear the term personality disorder quite a lot, but it, it is kind of, to my mind, a kind of modern day hysterical it's a kind of it's a label it, we can put on a woman yes it's like how it feels very old to me because i first heard about that in girl interrupted because that's yes. what susanna case had yeah, yeah so it was it felt very i mean that book was written when 60s 70s yes and so for me it felt like a very old thing that surely has evolved over the last mm. 20 30 40 years but no it's, you hear it a lot <laughs> yeah and actually there are you know i know some really good kind of a critical psychologists who kind of really look at you know society and power structures and think why are we putting this label and to my you know to my mind and there are people who will disagree that I just don't think anyone has a right to tell another human being that their personality is disordered mm. you know we should be asking what's happened to you rather than what's wrong with you and yeah. I think all of this stuff interconnects everything we're talking about as a thread yeah I mean, it's hard isn't it because i i i completely agree intellectually with what you're saying but i think i am i'm very very rarely ill i very rarely had cause to seek a diagnosis but when i have sought a diagnosis i've really really wanted one because yes. yeah. i am somebody for whom information is power so the yes. moment yeah. i the moment something happens to me, like, I'm pregnant, I'm going to read everything, I'm yes. going to nail this thing, I'm going to ace it, because I just need to read all the stuff and feel, in order to emotionally feel on top of things. Yes. And so if I have a health scare, I, I won't do the internet diagnosis thing, but I'll read proper stuff, you know, yes. rafts of information, because I want to feel, it helps me feel in control. Diagnosis is frequently... It's the psychological component of the treatment a lot of the time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, once you yeah, find absolutely. out what is wrong, well, it's or the you, magic you might pill. be wrong about it, but if you think you know what's wrong, well, and can you normalise it. Not I think for everything, but I you frequently feel better because you think now there's something I can address. With mental well, health, and, and especially, other people, I think there are other people like me. There are other yeah, people who yes. have the this same is a thing, thing as me. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors are not going to be phased by me because they see this all the time. There is some comfort. Well, yeah, there's comfort because yeah. diagnosis equals treatment. Diagnosis and the treatment equals a prescription. There's, uh, like we were talking earlier about having that magic pill. Yeah. If there is a name and a common thing that I'm experiencing, it means that people have been treated and there's a way to yeah. treat them and there's a medicine that I can take and mm, then I can make mm. this thing go away. Well, that you're not alone. I think the is That's a huge part mm -hmm. of The it, isolation that can come with feeling mentally unwell you know i think probably all of us in this room can say that we felt mentally unwell yeah. in our lives for sure it's a couple of times yeah, you a few know times yeah daily um, <laughs> every fucking day yeah. every waking yeah. moment but it's it's it takes the sting out of the isolation i think yeah but, and i think i think particularly i mean i don't know if i'm wrong but in like my first book anxiety for beginners i interviewed a lot of young men um particularly but you know very interested in the kind of the the shifting ideas around men discussing emotion um and seeking help with it and i i was aware that actually diagnosis and having that language having that concrete language was a really important thing for them mm. and i work with um some young men who is exactly the same thing you know having language with which to discuss it and to feel less like an outlier and more like, you know, a kind of new norm mm -hmm. is really powerful for them. And I yeah. think it's, you can't, 
I don't think you can argue with that. No, I, I absolutely like not. You can. No, you, you can't. You, you've uncovered so much um, stuff around this while you've been in training professionally, but also, of course, while you were researching the book. What, looking back, before any of that happened, what, knowing what you know now, might you have done differently? Got a therapist. I mean... Early doors. Absolutely. I think I had so much internal stigma about accepting and dealing with my mental health because it you know it happened from when I was like 17 and I first had a panic attack at school and for years and years I didn't even have the language of you know I kind of in the back of my mind knew it was panic but I just thought I was physically ill all the time all the time wow um and until I got a therapist it it, and then it all you know I started it's a new language a new inner language a language with which to talk to partners friends you know I lived with so much secrecy I lived a kind of double life yeah. I mean yeah. genuinely there's no well there's no you know I have friends that I have known me kind of all of that time and like what like you would be running out of rooms having a panic attack or running to a toilet or social anxiety they'd be like you're having a fucking laugh and like you were just nipping out for a wee or yeah something. like yeah, yeah. I'm just going for a fag. Yeah. Actually, no, I'm going outside to have a massive existential yeah. crisis yeah. Mm-hmm. and probably throw up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it kind of... We get very good at hiding. Unbelievably That's a good learned at hiding. thing. Yeah. yeah. But it, it would be to get a therapist. And I think there is still, I think, therapy is seen as a sort of luxury or, you know, something we don't deserve unless we're really suffering. But actually, I really see it as... You know, of course, you know, I think there. I mean, it is a literal luxury for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. And in the NHS, waiting lists are so long. Yeah. It, you know, funding is being ripped from local authorities all the time, which feel it's so short-sighted, it makes me want to scream. Yeah, it's disgusting, it's like, really. But if you're taking away that resource, you're, you know, you're just not going to have a happy, I'm using the word happy, but a kind of, functioning yeah well functioning society yeah. was it was it last last year for the first time the number of pounds um wasted in the workplace through mental ill health versus physical ill health it overtook yes. for the first so 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 the economy lost more money through yeah. people having to take time off for yeah. mental health it's than so for physical, physiological health mm-hmm. but actually i think even you know actually now this is one of the biggest shifts in my thinking that i've had is to me, there isn't really a distinction between physical and mental. A problem no. in the mind is also one in the body. Of yeah. And mm. yeah. anxiety, certainly for me and anyone that I've known with it, it's as much, you know, if anything, it, it is a physical, it feels like a disease. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my closest friends for years and years and years had heart problems. And she had she had private health care through her husband's work and she had every imaginable test on her heart. And she kept saying, there's something wrong with my heart. She thought there were all sorts of things wrong. It went on for bloody years. Mm. And I kept saying... I think you have anxiety. I think you have anxiety. And she, of course, was really insulted by that. Yeah. She, she was saying, well, you're saying it's all in my head. I am genuinely ill. I'm saying, no, I know you're genuinely ill. It doesn't mean but it's I, not I, real. I, yeah. You are it's... genuinely ill. I'm just saying I don't think you've got heart disease. I think there's a mental component to this. Anyway, one day, years, years afterwards, when it was still going on and she was still having a go at me for dismissing her symptoms, which I really wasn't, she said, oh, it's really weird. Um, I had a Valium the other day and my heart was fine. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, yes, 
<laughs> and, and and was and was um, was diagnosed with anxiety and uh, and and she just she took course that's not a long term solution but she happened to take a valium and when the mental component the anxiety component was taking out of it suddenly her heart stopped beating like the clappers. She stopped having palpitations. She stopped having what she thought was a murmur or a skipped mm-hmm. beat. And she'd been feeling physically really unwell for many years. And It's awful. And once the moment you start... pause was pressed on yes. her brain, yeah. it went away. And once you start fixating on... The, I mean, that's what drives so many areas of anxiety, and certainly for me personally. When you start scanning your body and you start fixating on the physical symptoms then you start not being able to get away from them. And it's a it's a constant feedback loop, and that's what CBT mm. starts that's, to try and that's unpick. That's what you found, wasn't it? You found that you couldn't, you could no longer separate the anxiety from physical manifestation. But you can't. Manifestation. You can't. No. You, you cannot. They are, it's all, you know, we talk about fight or flight, and it's the trigger is often a thought. Yeah. You know, thoughts drive the whole thing. It's all the this relationship thing. between thoughts, feelings, and actions, and, and how they all yeah. bounce off yeah. each other like, snooker balls yeah and we call them bilateral relationships Mm. you kind of thoughts are linked to feeling feeling is linked to behavior and it all interlinks all the time yeah but it's really useful to find out about the physical aspect about adrenaline the fact that that feeling you're feeling isn't some sort of yeah those twinges i was talking about earlier it was literally from stress and anxiety finding that out is really sort of useful for years feeling like i was just going to puke or faint all the time you know getting on the tube i'm going to be sick going to shit myself yeah yeah you know and that sort of constricting feeling in my throat and for years i was like oh you know something's really i've got cancer i've got something and it's you know the phrase it's all in your head can be quite pernicious but actually it's all in your everything self mm. yeah you know well the relationship it, it, the link is absolutely there it's sort of you know because something's going wrong in your head doesn't mean that the thing that's going wrong in your anatomy isn't there they're, they're linked they're doing mm-hmm. they're working on each other aren't they yeah, yeah. The there's an amazing book called it's all in your head by a neurologist um god i can't remember her name it came out a couple of years ago um oh Susanna sullivan and the whole thing is about people that present with neurological disorders. So they have seizures, you know, tremors, and they go, you know, they go and see her. She's an NHS doctor thinking that they have Parkinson's, epilepsy, yeah. and they have all of the tests and they find nothing wrong. Yeah. But you dig deeper, there is so often psychological trauma. There is, you know, and it, it kind of, your body speaks it's like your body is, mm-hmm. is telling, it's telling you it's telling you that there's something wrong yeah. or that's something that you need to address. And I think often this is part of the whole PMS world as well. It's kind of what is our body telling us? Mm-hmm. And it's about listening. I think that's that's what I think that's what's popped up throughout this conversation is um, listening to what your body's telling you and to try to connect with it mm-hmm. when yeah. it's giving you signs. Listen and watch yeah it's been so interesting i just feel like this is such an underexplored um area eleanor morgan's book hormonal is out tomorrow um you can get it in literally every bookshop it's really really good i really strongly recommend that anybody reads it if you're ever just a bit confused about what's going on with you i I think it's so enlightening and particularly as well if you live with somebody Mm -hmm. for whom this is an issue and you just can't get your head around how they're feeling. I certainly couldn't understand for a long time how people were feeling. And um, even had I not gone through this recent thing, I think this book would have taught me an awful lot. So, Eleanor Morgan, thank you so much. Will you come back again, please? Never.
<laughs> Screw you! No <laughs> um, and obviously, Kate Sevilla and I will be Queen. back in four weeks. And thank you unexpectedly to Daniel Meyer. Yes, thanks. thanks. Daniel. And <laughs> my formerly anxious husband, who is, um, or still occasionally anxious husband, who um, was dragged into the conversation kicking and screaming. Thank you for that too. We'll see you in four weeks and we'll finish with My Ever Changing Moods by the Star Council. Bye. Bye. 